0: Marcel Zielenberg is in London at a conference. He's just finished having dinner with some of his fellow psychologists and is walking down a corridor when two PhD students from his university approach him and ask to talk.
1: I said, of course, it might take a few hours. I said, nothing planned until evening, so uh, tell me what's on your
0: mind. It wasn't really what was on their mind. It was more of who was on their mind. One of Marcel's closest and most trusted colleagues. Diedrich Stapel. In fact, Diedrich was an international star in the world of social science. He was dean of the School of Social and Behavioral Sciences at Tilburg University in the Netherlands, while Marcel held down the position of head of the social psychology department. Essentially, Diedrich was Marcel's boss. So here Marcel was, sitting with his students, waiting to see what they had to say. They told me that they were suspecting his data, See, what you got to understand is, a scientist's data is the foundation for all of what they do. Every time they think of a theory, every time they want to prove some hypothesis, data is what shows whether their hunch was right or wrong. And now, these students were suspecting something fishy about the validity of Diedrich's data. These students, they've been spying on Diedrich for months collecting information as if they were some detectives on a stakeout. And Marcel, he really couldn't ignore their claims. He had to speak to him.
1: And I had uh, emailed him and I had asked him, could you please come by my house on a Friday night when I'm when I'm back from, from England because we need to talk.
0: Nobody likes to receive a we-need-to-talk message. But what was Marcel supposed to say? It's like, Here's this guy, Diedrich, he looked up to his whole career. And now Marcel had to straight up ask him if he cheated his data. And that's a serious claim in the social sciences world. He had to ask if everything Diedrich's world famous studies were based on were in fact lies. This is the guy that I trust most in the world. For me, it
1: was like, you very much suspect that your partner is having an affair and then you need to ask this. But it's really scary to ask that because you
0: fear the answer. You fear that the answer is yes. I'm Alzo Slade, and from something else, this is Cheap. A series that asks the question, is it ever okay to break the rules? This week, The Lying Dutchman. How one man cast a shadow on the world of social science. What's the saying? Don't let the truth get in the way of a good story? We can all identify with that one, right? Let's say you're at a dinner party or hanging with your friends and you've engaged them with a story about how this crazy dude came and sat down next to you on the train, even though there were empty seats everywhere. Everybody's paying attention to you telling this story because they can relate and you got them. They're engaged. You're speaking with confidence and conviction. In the process of telling the story, you may embellish the facts just a little bit, you know, to increase the entertainment value. And your audience, they're none the wiser to these small lies because they're being entertained, and they want to believe you. But what if you're not at a dinner party, and the point was not to entertain? What if you were in the world of academia, and the point was to genuinely inform people about the way we as humans actually work. That was the job of Diedrich Stapel, a psychologist from the Netherlands. About 10 years ago, Diedrich was a star in the world of social science for his theories about human behavior. He was revered for his studies that gave huge insight into the way our environment affects our thoughts, feelings, and actions. He was pretty much a hero in his home country, a brilliant mind. Until, after years of analyzing other people's actions, Diedrich was suddenly confronted by his own. Actions that ultimately would lead to a spectacular fall from grace. But to understand this story, we need to understand the world of social psychology a little bit.
2: So, I mean, I've been writing about psychology and social psychology for really more
0: than, I guess, more than a decade now. That's Tom Bartlett. Tom's a science journalist based in Austin, Texas. Social psychology really began emerging as a field in the United States in the early 1900s. The definition? The scientific study of how people's thoughts, feelings and behaviors are influenced by the actual, imagined or implied presence of others. It really came into practice during World War II when social psychologists studied the effects of propaganda for the U.S. military. And after the war, the field developed into looking at gender issues and racial prejudice. It was a niche area and pretty much operated in the academic shadows until the mid-2000s. You know, with kind of the rise of the Internet
2: and social media, you had a lot of social psych studies that were shiny, exciting studies that seem to say something about our everyday lives started going
0: viral. So it's pretty crazy to think of a scientific study going viral. It's not exactly a video of a cat, but social psychology was definitely starting to gain some traction. And by 2010, it had exploded through huge writers such as Malcolm Gladwell. And before you knew it, most of us were part of this science through Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. And one of the key producers of this content was TED Talks. One of the most popular TED
2: Talks of all time is by a researcher named Amy Cuddy, and it was on power poses.
1: So I want to start by um, offering you a free no-tech life hack. And all it requires of you is this, that you change your posture for two minutes
2: power poses are the idea that before you give a speech or give an interview or give a talk or something that a way to actually make yourself more physiologically confident actually to increase your levels of confidence you could stand hands on your hips legs akimbo looking like a confident person and that that would actually
0: make you more confident i wish you guys could see the pose that i'm in before i record these podcasts This TED Talk was a serious hit for the social psychology world. It got millions of views online. And not only that, but it really did influence the way people around the world behaved before a stressful situation. Power poses and a lot of the more mainstream social psych theories were based around this idea of priming. So the idea that something you just saw
2: will sort of influence your behavior. There was another study at the time that got a lot of attention that was whether after you did something you considered to be immoral, if you washed your hands, would that sort of absolve your
0: feelings of guilt? All of these studies that crossed over into the mainstream and became popular on social media, they had a few things in common. They're very simple to understand.
2: They seem like they you know might have an application in our daily lives. And often they came with, like, nifty sort of nicknames and taglines. The hand-washing thing was called the pilot effect. Pilot sentences Jesus to death and then washes his hands famously. Maybe that makes him feel better.
0: These were things to bring up at dinner parties to make people seem interesting and well-read. But they run the risk of being the obnoxious guest that wants everyone to think that they're smart. You know that person. And if you don't, I hate to break it to you. You're probably that person. The one at the dinner party saying, oh, have you heard that if you wash your hands after doing something you shouldn't, you won't feel as guilty? You know, researchers cranked them out. Reporters sort of dutifully wrote them up. Readers read them. This thing was now becoming a whole ecosystem, a culture that people would subscribe to. With all these leaders and great minds at the forefront pushing the whole thing forward, creating more studies that would create more headlines. And infiltrate more dinner parties. And one of the gatekeepers of this ecosystem was Diedrich Stoppel. Diedrich was born in the Netherlands in the 1960s. He did pretty well at school, in sports, and loved acting in plays. After high school, Diedrich moved to Pennsylvania to study acting before realizing he didn't have a future in the movies. So he returned home to get a degree in psychology. He eventually applied to the University of Amsterdam to study for a Ph.D. He missed out that year. They gave the place to another young psychologist, Marcel Zielenberg. Undeterred, Diedrich applied the year after, and he got in. So he and Marcel finally got to meet.
1: I found him to be a super friendly, nice, warm, and knowledgeable guy.
0: One thing about Diedrich was obvious to Marcel. He was definitely clever.
1: You know, if you work in academia, you 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 run into people that are that outsmart you, and that is good because you can learn a lot from them.
0: Marcel and Diedrich both left Amsterdam in 2000, a few years after completing their PhDs. Marcel went to Tilburg University, and Diedrich to Groningen. While at Groningen, Diedrich started to find his niche. I think most of
1: the research that he did, I think what we now call social priming research,
0: you know like the PowerPose TED Talk we mentioned earlier. And Diedrich's social priming studies were making him into a bit of a star. But it wasn't just his research.
1: He was, you know, smart, successful, had a very sort of easy way of talking and communicating. He clearly stood
0: out. And because Diedrich was such a great communicator, it meant that he was able to get his work published in all the top journals. He had a knack for knowing what the journals were looking for. His studies were also palatable, easy to understand. They were neat. Getting your work in peer reviewed publications is everything for academics. Diedrich's studies made news not only for himself, but also the university. That meant he was more likely to receive funding to start new studies. It's basically a whole cycle.
2: Once you've sort of achieved that senior researcher level, you can continue to accrue power by producing more studies that make a big splash to get published in science or get published in nature. And so your influence and the size of your lab grows and yeah, you receive more funding. And there's a lot of incentive to be increasingly prolific. And he was
0: remarkably prolific. Diedrich left Groningen and joined Marcel at Tilburg University in 2006. And I mean, he really had a reputation as one of the most
2: exciting social psychologists who really seem to be on the cutting edge of understanding, you know, understanding human behavior and how we might alter it in significant ways. And he also seemed to be
0: addressing actual kind of social problems. In 2011, one of the biggest journals was Science. They published one of his studies called Coping with Chaos. It was a study that purported to show
2: that In a chaotic environment, people are more likely to discriminate against others and stereotype others. Say there's a street where, you know, there's an abandoned bicycle and the sidewalks are broken up and maybe there's graffiti or something and there's trash around.
0: Diedrich set up an experiment at Utrecht train station. He invited white volunteers to fill out a questionnaire in a seat among a row of six chairs. The row was empty except for the first chair, which was taken by a black occupant or a white one. Diedrich claimed that the white volunteers tended to sit farther away from the black person when the surrounding area was littered with trash. So
2: that's another example of a study that's interesting. It seems to like maybe offer an easy fix to deeply entrenched social problems. It's not hard to explain. And it seemed really conclusive, the effects he found. I mean, in that paper, they recommend, you know, great. Maybe we can clean up the environment more, clean up streets. And maybe that makes people behave in ways that are you know, more generous and more fair and more just. And that was a big study.
0: This study made headlines all over the world. But it was only a few months later when Diedrich's name would be making headlines for very different reasons. That's coming up after the break. Marcel is working with Diedrich at Tilburg University when he has an idea of something to investigate.
1: The idea actually started when I was um, with my partner in the car. We were talking a little bit about um, the financial crisis at the moment.
0: There was a study in the Netherlands that claimed people were saving more money because of all of the scary news around the financial crisis. Then Marcel starts talking to his wife about this other research, looking at what happens to people when they're confronted with their own mortality.
1: They said, well, if you um, remind people of their own mortality, they are going to spend more money.
0: So Marcel thought, here you have two things that make people feel uncertain, their mortality and the financial crisis, but with two differing results. One makes people spend more. The other makes them save more.
1: I went to Debrek and I said, listen, this is uh, what I think about. And he said, that's really cool. We should run studies about that. So we designed a number of studies. At one point in time, uh, the studies were run, and he analyzed
0: them, and the data looked really nice. He couldn't believe it. The data completely supported all of their theories. I remember telling to my colleagues,
1: This is really amazing. This is the best data I've ever seen. I've I've never had data as good as this. Normally, if you do research, but your data is always a little bit—it's typically not crystal clear what you were. But in this case, the data were super clear, totally in line with everything we expected, in a a beautiful way.
0: A few months go by, and Marcel is attending a conference in London. And that's when he's approached by two of his PhD students. These students were suspicious about Diedrich's research. They invited Marcel to their dorm that night and told him how they'd been examining Diedrich's data for months. And they discovered a load of anomalies, including two sets of identical data for different studies. I really wanted to believe that there was an explanation for this. So Marcel gets back home and he's like, Ah, Diedrich, I gotta ask you to come by the house. Diedrich,
1: do you fake data? (laughs) He didn't say yes, but um, I I think he gave gave himself away.
0: Marcel knew deep down that his friend had messed up.
1: The only person higher than him was the the rector of the university and I had to inform him about uh, the suspicion. Then sort of uh, the shit
0: hit at the fan. Damn, this is your boy. This is your academic homie, your buddy in scientific arms. I mean, this social science game must be serious if you take your man to the chopping block like that.
1: For me, it was like, you know, this is the guy that I trust most in the world. <laughs> he falls from his horse, as we say in Dutch.
0: And it was then that the rector of the university started looking into Diedrich.
1: I think there was 10 days between when I informed our rector and that we had a press conference where it was announced that this was going on.
0: They discovered enough to know that at least some of what the students had claimed was true, that Diedrich had fake data on multiple studies. Also
1: on that day, Diedrich resigned. So he he wasn't fired, but he resigned before he could be fired.
0: Not only did Diedrich resign, but he also gave back his doctorate to Amsterdam University, the place where he and Marcel had met. At the press conference, the head of Tilburg University announced a committee that would lead a serious investigation into Diedrich.
1: I don't think any of us realized that that committee was going to be extended with two more
0: committees, and that the whole investigation, in the end, took about two years to complete. Two years to complete? The committee had to go through dozens of Diedrich studies, including those of his PhD students and any he was co-author on.
1: Basically, everybody who had worked with him before was suspect, almost was, was a suspect in that investigation for about two years.
0: The ramifications of this were huge, not only for Diedrich, but for everyone around him. Because not only had Diedrich used his fake data on his own studies, he had also allowed his PhD students to use that data, which meant that everything they were working towards, years of dedication in order to get a doctorate, was all for nothing.
1: Two of them decided to do a new one. But there's also a number of people that left the field because of this. When you uh, think that you have an academic career ahead of you, and then you have to uh,
0: quit that because you were fake. In total, the report states that there were 55 studies with fraudulent data, including 10 dissertations written by his PhD students. That was a shock, I think partially just because the accusations were that these were
2: entirely made-up studies. The extent of it, that there were dozens of these studies, more than 50, was kind of mind blowing, and I think started to make people ask questions about how, not just sort of why he would do this and how he pulled it off, but sort of how it slipped through peer review into these journals and why why no one was raising questions and why it took so long. That's coming up after the break.
0: Diedrich's fall from grace was swift and severe. In November of 2012, his former employer, Tilburg University, released a report detailing 55 of his studies in which he implemented fake data. In other words, a lot of his research was hogwash.
2: Certainly within the science world, he went from being, you know, a star to uh, someone who brought, you know, shame not just on himself or his university, but really on the
0: whole field. He gave the whole field a terrible black eye this dude went from hero to zero real quick. And it didn't just affect him. People started questioning social psychology altogether. Was this stuff really true? If I do these poses, am I really going to feel more confident? Am I really more racist when there's trash around? I mean, you really should need a study to answer those questions, but I get it.
2: Particularly in the Netherlands, I think he went from being you know, a hero and someone who might be recognized down at the coffee shop kind of level of celebrity to, you know, a real pariah. It's hard to think of another scientist who fell so far and so
0: hard in recent years. But the question is, how did Diedrich get away with faking data for so long? I would say sort of how he gets
2: away with it is a problem that's larger larger than Diedrich Stoppel. But at
0: the core of it is data transparency. Turns out, Diedrich was mad secretive with his data and how he was gathering it. One of the things he did,
2: and then he admitted later to doing, was not sharing any of this data, even with his co-authors in a number of cases. So he very much kept all of that process to himself. And this allowed him to fabricate the results of entire studies. He would work with others to come up with the design of a study, to maybe come up with a theory, would discuss
0: that, and then he would go away and then he'd return with data that fit those ideas. And this often meant that Diedrich was put down as a co-author on these studies. But when his co-authors asked him where this data came from...
2: He had stories about why he couldn't release this data and he had special agreements with people and he didn't want to betray their confidence, you know, when in fact he was making all this up.
0: He invented various high schools that he'd used to collect data from the students but he wouldn't allow anyone else to contact them as he didn't want to overwhelm them with requests. He would also sit at his house with different pencils and pens and actually fill in the questionnaires himself. Hundreds of them. I mean, switching pencils and pens, to me, that seems like a lot of energy and effort. Like, you could have just put that same energy towards doing the work that was supposed to be done, right? Plus... You'd think that more of these academics would ask some questions, wouldn't you? I mean, these are supposed to be the smart people. If you're a junior researcher and
2: you, you know, you get to be on a paper with Diedrich Stoppel, you get to be a co-author on that paper. You know, that's pretty exciting. That can be a stepping stone to a long and successful career. I think that was part of a part of what he loved. He loved the attention and b part of what helped him kind of get away with it for so long is people were. You know, maybe afraid to challenge him because he was such a big was such a big deal, and it seemed so unthinkable that it might all be based on you know nothing.
0: So, what was it that seduced Diedrich in the first place? Fame, notoriety, academic success. What he says
2: is he became addicted. He uses the word addicted, you know, to having successful studies, to being talked about, to being the big man on campus, to being successful in his field, to being famous and being on television and so on, that he became, I think he writes at one point, that he became a junkie for success. But all addiction starts somewhere. He says his progression into being a complete fraudster starts with tweaking a few numbers around the edges to make something work, and then it sort of progresses to just straight out, you know, making things up, that it became sort of impossible to stop. And he wanted to get out, and he was depressed, and he felt worried about being caught. But once he kind of became ensnared in this fraud, he he couldn't stop. Tom also talks about the role of the media in all of this. To sort of put some of the blame on my profession is journalists were far too eager to take these studies at face value and to use them as fodder for their next blog post or
0: article or whatever they wanted to do. This form of science was becoming so popular that journalists were jumping all over these stories. They didn't read the studies. They didn't talk to other researchers. They
2: didn't raise an eyebrow at any of it because it was good for them. I certainly wrote some blog posts back in the day that I think, oh, you know, if I had to do it again, I maybe wouldn't write those blog posts. or I would look more, more skeptically at some of those studies. You know, there was an ecosystem for this and it was researchers churning out studies and the media writing them up and readers taking them in and, and authors turning them into best-selling books. And it was sort of great for everybody, except that a lot of it wasn't true. And for everyone,
0: there was no real incentive to take a little bit of a harder look. After Diedrich, a number of other social psychologists were called into question, including Amy Cuddy, you know, the one who presented the TED Talk over the power pose. Her co-author, has distanced herself from the study. Although Amy, she still stands by it. But all of this points toward wider problems in academia. Problems that the community is still trying to address. One of the problems in social psychology was this
2: idea, or I guess remains, this idea of the file drawer problem. I run a bunch of studies. Most of them don't work out. I pick the one that happens to work out, and I only... Published that, and I only tell everyone about my success, and I don't mention the eight failures. There's a bunch of problems with that because that one that I picked that was successful and that I told everyone about may have just kind of been a little bit of random chance, right? And if you knew the full context, you would doubt that study. But I would say the key thing that's happened in the last decade is more of a more of a push toward sharing your data with others, and so some journals now require you to give them the data that you based the article on. So if you'd done that with Stoppel, I think the game would have been up pretty quickly and
0: he might not have even attempted it because it would have been you know, too difficult. Meanwhile, Diedrich has never been accepted back into the social site community. He's apologized publicly on many occasions for the damage he's caused. In 2012, he released a book detailing what happened during the scandal. But some people thought he was just trying to profit further from his transgressions. I guess the real victims of all of this were the people around Diedrich, his students that bought into his legend and colleagues like Marcel who trusted him. Hey, folks, thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Cheat wherever you get it. And please do leave a rating and a review if you like what we're doing. It helps other people discover the show. And of course, we want more listeners. Also, if you want to listen to the show without the ads, you can subscribe to Cheat Plus. It's like Cheat, but better. It's just $2.99 a month, or if you're in the UK, £2.49. And you get all of this without having to listen to those annoying commercials. Just go to Apple podcast and hit subscribe instead of follow. You can try it for free now. Next time on Cheat. Rules is a rule, policy is a policy. I'm not supporting what he did, but I'm also not
2: against, because if there were not trading of whatever endangered species of orchids, there are high likelihood that some of the species could be extinct.
0: The is written and presented by me, Alzo Slade. The producer for this episode is Tom Fuller. The executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs and Tom Koenig. The original idea for this show was developed by Tom Fuller. Engineering, sound design, and scoring by Martin Peralta. Our design and visual team is Emma Lansdowne and Sarah De La Rue. Special thanks to Steve Ackerman, Mark Rivers, Peggy Sutton, and Ella McLeod.